Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. At that period, the dominion of the Roman people, it seems to me, was by far the most pitiable Although the whole world, from the rising to the setting of the sun, had been subdued by arms and was obedient to Rome, although at home there was peace and wealth, which mortals deem the foremost blessings, nevertheless there were citizens who from sheer perversity set out to destroy themselves and the state. For in spite of the two senatorial decrees, neither was anyone out of such a great throng induced by a reward to betray the conspiracy, nor did a single individual desert Catiline's camp. A disease of such great intensity, and just like a plague, had infected the mind of a great many of our countrymen. Welcome all to the Cost of Glory podcast. I'm Alex Petkus, your faithful host. That was Sallust once again. Normally it is our mission at the Cost of Glory podcast to retell the lives of the famous Greek and Roman heroes, following the lead of Plutarch's biographies and his work, The Parallel Lives. But we are taking a brief detour here. This is part three of three of some highlights of the Catalinarian Conspiracy, this series of events that rocked Rome in 63 BC. And today we will look at the remainder of Sallust's War with Catiline. Sallust, you will recall, is a historian writing about 20 years after these events took place, and he was old enough to remember some of this stuff. So I think this introductory quote that I read to you from Sallust, I mean, he's basically saying Rome was in a very sad state. Never before had we been so wealthy and powerful, and yet some within the state were so driven by madness that they they turned their spears against the fatherland. Well, I think this is interesting because Sallust is commenting on the causes of the Catalinarian conspiracy, and his, his approach is similar to Cicero's. It's hard for Sallust to see any redeeming claim to justice by Catiline and the people that he stood for, that he represented. And this is one of the points on which many modern scholars differ with Sallust and Cicero's portrayal of the events. A lot of people today like to see Catiline in a more sympathetic light, or at least the causes that he stood for, because, I mean, there was a real debt crisis in Rome at this time. There were a lot of reasons for this, years of turmoil, and uh, the East was actually opening up to Roman businessmen again. It had been under the sway of Mithridates for a number of years, the rebellion against Rome led by Mithridates in the East, and then Lucullus, and then after him Pompey were kind of cleaning up the 
mess and and reestablishing Roman power in the East and Roman businessmen are wanting to go in and move in and invest. And so there's a kind of a credit crunch, you know, capital is being tied up in loans, loans are, loans are being called. And so th- there are really are serious issues and to say nothing of the incredible wealth inequality of this period with senators getting extraordinarily rich when they're with their foreign clientele and somebody like Crassus being able to raise his own private army. Uh, so we, we won't get too into that today, but I think it's good to keep in mind that there's another story on why Catiline maybe had a point and maybe had some reason to hope that his cause could succeed because there was a lot of legitimate claim behind it. And so on the one hand, Sallust may be right about Catiline personally when he kind of alludes to him with the following passage that I'll read for you. Whoever disturbed the state under the guise of honorable slogans, some as though defending the rights of the people, Catiline, others so that the Senate's influence might be dominant, Cicero, under pretense of the public good, each in reality strove for his own influence. Such men showed neither self-restraint nor moderation in their strife. Both parties used their victory ruthlessly. He might not be talking about Catiline and Cicero specifically there, maybe Caesar and Pompey or Caesar and Cato. I mean, today I think you'd call what he just said black-pilled, his take on Roman politics of the, the final days of the Republic. And you do have to remember that Sallust is writing after the death of Cato and Caesar and Pompey in this great civil war, and after the murder of Cicero at the hands of Mark Antony's henchmen. So it's understandable that, that he takes this perspective, and, and he's very cynical about Catiline's motives, and maybe he was right. But when you consider the contents of this episode, the way it all ends, and even something that Sallust just said in that passage I read at the very beginning, that nobody betrayed the conspiracy voluntarily of Catiline. You gotta think, what was the other side of this story that we're not really hearing from these sources? But let's get to it. Highlights from Sallust's War with Catiline, Catiline Part 3. So you'll remember from last episode, Catiline left the city after Cicero's speech against him, against Catiline, and he went off and he told everybody when he was leaving and he wrote letters to to this effect that he was unjustly accused and he was going off to live in exile in Marseille, in France, in Massilia is what they called it. So he told everybody he was just going off into a voluntary exile to spare the Republic any further disturbance. But in reality, Sallust says, he's, he goes off to join this army that's being raised for him by this guy named Manlius, who was a former centurion of Sulla, and they're in Etruria in Tuscany now, so that's northwest of Rome, a few days' march. So Catiline goes off, and Manlius has an interaction with some Roman generals in the area through letters. He, he tells them that oh, we don't mean any harm. 
And the generals respond, well, if you don't mean any harm, why don't you lay down arms? And so that doesn't really come to anything. It's, it's ominous. But meanwhile, back in the city, there are still conspirators left. As Cicero uh, repeatedly pointed out in his speech against Catiline, and he was right about this. And there's an interesting kind of sequence, and I, I'll just summarize it here. It's worth reading the account that Sallust gives. It's, a, it's an interesting tale. So basically, the conspirators, the way that the conspirators in the city are found out is they try to approach some ambassadors from a tribe of Gauls called the Allobroges, who are allies, kind of disgruntled allies of Rome in Gaul somewhere, southern Gaul. And the Allobroges, the, you know, this conspirator of Catiline comes to them and says, hey, you guys have been having a bad rap with Roman creditors squeezing you too hard, and the Romans have been unjust to you. Well, what if we had a solution to your problem? And they say, oh, well, that's very interesting. They're, you know, in Rome doing some business. And um, so basically they, they get presented with this offer. They get invited to a private meeting at the house of a senator who's out of town. And uh, his wife is one of the conspirators. I mean, the level of detail here, here is kind of amazing. So basically they get presented with this proposal. Why don't you join our conspiracy? We're going to, you know, overthrow the republic, set fire to the city. And when they get this news, they, they're kind of worried. They, they're not sure that they signed up for this when they were looking for a relief from their debts, you know. So the word eventually gets to Cicero. They, you know, reach out with their connections and uh, make it clear that they don't want to be a part of this Catalinary conspiracy. And they ask Cicero for his advice. And he says, play the role as if you were, you know, on board with the conspiracy. Be my mole in this process. So that eventually, and I'll spare you the blow by blow, but that eventually that's how the conspirators remaining in the city get caught. And the head of the conspirators in the city is a guy named Lentulus, Publius Cornelius Lentulus Sura. So Lentulus is it's a man from a very distinguished family, the Cornelii, Sulla was in that clan, the Scipios were in that clan. I mean, it's a very large patrician clan a noble clan, the, the Cornelius family. Lentulus had been a consul, actually, earlier in his career. And he was, for some kind of unclear reason, ejected from the Senate by one of the censors. So he was kind of, he'd fallen from grace. And he was rebuilding his career. And he was currently a praetor. He's actually an, an elected praetor. He's, he's an officer uh, magistrate of the Roman Republic in 63 BC. So he's a very serious person. And Lentulus and the fellow conspirators that he has, one of them is Cathagus. The names aren't that important, but they get rounded up. Um, they get arrested. And the Senate asks for Lentulus's resignation and he offers it. All these details come to light. And one detail that is a very interesting twist in the plot here is that as the allegations are coming to light, and it's not just the Allobroges, it's not just these Gallic ministers, a couple of other people get apprehended and you know, end up giving more damning evidence against the conspirators. One of them implicates Crassus, Marcus Licinius Crassus. We haven't gotten to Crassus yet, 
But at this point, Crassus is the richest man in Rome. And the guy says, well, Crassus was sending a message to Catiline and the conspirators to not be afraid, but continue on with your plans to, I guess, march on Rome. This is admitted, this evidence is admitted in the Senate. And people aren't sure what to do with it because Crassus is, you know, an incredibly powerful man. And I'll just read you what Sallust says here. But when Tarquinius named Crassus a noble of tremendous wealth and extraordinary power, a cry arose that the informer was a liar and the demand was made for the matter to be laid before the Senate, some raising their voices because they thought the whole thing incredible, others because it seemed best in such a crisis for so powerful a man to be conciliated rather than provoked. Quite a few being under obligation to Crassus as a result of private business relations. So a lot of people are literally in debt to Crassus in the Senate. So <laughs> some people maybe think that he would he was involved. And you, you got to think, if Catiline is a reasonable, smart, clever politician, and he's launching this conspiracy, he's got to be counting on some people to support him once he overthrows the Republic or whatever he's doing. He's, it's not really beyond the pale of possibility that he would have somehow reached out to Crassus. And uh, a lot of people think that that's quite plausible, but they don't want it mentioned because we have to keep Crassus on our side in such a moment of danger. Very interesting. So yeah, even though they believe Tarquinius's allegation to be true. So going on to Sallust here, accordingly upon Cicero putting the question to the Senate, a full Senate voted that the disclosure of Tarquinius about Crassus in their view was false, that he should be kept in bonds and given no further opportunity to testify unless he revealed the identity of the man at whose instigation he had concocted such a monstrous lie. At the same time, some believed, this is interesting, that the disclosure had been contrived by Publius Autronius, one of the conspirators, so that once Crassus was named as an accessory his influence might shield the rest through his involvement in the danger. Hmm. Others declared that Tarquinius had been instigated by Cicero so that Crassus might not take up the protection of evildoers after his usual custom and throw the nation into confusion. Hmm. Interesting. I personally heard Crassus, this is Sallust speaking, I personally heard Crassus himself assert afterward that the grave and shameful allegation had been inflicted upon him by Cicero. So, nothing ends up coming of that, but very interesting to think of who could have been involved behind the scenes in this plot, besides Catiline and the men who get named and eventually punished, as we'll see. So the climax of the second half of this book is two set speeches, this clash between Julius Caesar and Cato. So here's what happens. The conspirators get arrested, and then the Senate meets, and one of the consuls-elect, not Cicero, but one of the consuls-elect, proposes that they extract the supreme penalty. And so they start basically debating whether to put these conspirators to death as the evidence is building from the witnesses that they've heard from, that Cicero is brought to the Senate's attention. And I'll read you a passage from a little later 
in the book where Sallust actually describes these two men in his own words, two men that he remembers well, Julius Caesar and Cato, uh, are both relatively early in their career, and uh, this is long before Caesar conquered Gaul, although he was clearly an up-and-coming politician already at this point. And Cato is a famously stern, stoic philosopher, and he's always asking the Romans to live up to a higher moral code, uh, you know, kind of live up to their older ways. Cato always seems like a man who was born a little too late, like 100 years too late. And we'll get to both of their biographies soon, but here's, here's Sallust's take on these two men, and this is a pretty famous passage. Now, for my own part, while reading and hearing of the many illustrious deeds of the Roman people at home and in, and in war, on land and sea, a desire happened to stir in me to give thought to what factor in particular had made possible such great exploits. He's kind of working up to his point here. I knew that often, with just a handful of men, they had done battle with vast enemy legions. I was aware that with small resources they had waged wars with powerful kings, also that they had endured the cruelty of fortune, that the Romans had been surpassed by the Greeks in eloquence and by the Gauls in martial glory. After much pondering, I became convinced that it had all been accomplished by the eminent merit of a few citizens, that as a result of this merit, poverty had triumphed over riches and small numbers over a multitude. But after the body of citizens had been ruined by extravagance and idleness, the nation in turn offset by its own greatness the shortcomings of its generals and magistrates. And just as if the vigor of their ancestors were worn out with childbearing, in many periods no one at all in Rome was outstanding for his merit. But within my own memory there were two men of towering merit though of opposite character, Marcus Cato and Gaius Caesar. With respect to these men, since the subject matter has introduced them, it is not my intention to pass them by in silence without describing to the utmost of my ability the disposition and character of each. Well then, in ancestry, age, and eloquence, they were almost equal. On a par was their greatness of soul, Likewise their renown, but each of a different sort. Caesar was considered great because of his benefactions and lavish generosity. Cato, for the uprightness of his life. The former, Caesar, became famous for his gentleness and compassion. To the latter, sternness had imparted prestige. Caesar gained renown by giving, by relieving difficulties, by forgiving Cato by no conferral of lavish gifts. In the one was refuge for the unfortunate, in the other, destruction for the wicked. The former, Caesar's, easygoing nature was praised, the latter's steadfastness. Finally, Caesar had made up his mind to work hard, to be alert. He devoted himself to the affairs of his friends and to the neglect of his own. He refused nothing that was worthy of being given. He craved a major command, an army, a fresh war in which his merit might be able to shine forth. Cato, on the contrary, cultivated self-control, propriety, 
but above all, sternness. Severitas is the Latin word there. And, and the merit in this passage is, is virtus. We might translate it as virtue. It's going on here. Cato did not vie in riches with the rich, nor in intrigue with the intriguers, but with the energetic in merit, in virtue, with the self-restrained in moderation, with the blameless in integrity. He preferred to be rather than to merely seem virtuous. That's a famous quote you might have heard. Esse quam videri bonus malebat. He preferred to be rather than to seem. Hence, the less he sought renown, the more it overtook him. So, that's Salus' take on those two guys. Which of them do you admire the most? I think that could tell you a lot about where you might be headed in life. But there's a lot to admire in both Cato and Caesar. And we'll get to them soon. But let's listen to their speeches. So, Salust puts these speeches into their mouths... He, it's, it's his words, as usual, and these ancient historians, they don't always have the exact text. Sometimes they do, and they tell you, but in this case, Sallust is trying to plausibly reconstruct. He might have sources. He certainly heard these men speak a lot, so he knew how they would have spoken in the situation, but he, you know, he, might, he might actually have some evidence here. Who knows? But let's read their speeches that they give on this question of what to do with the conspirators. So Caesar is going to plea for clemency, maybe the first time that he becomes publicly associated with this pattern, which he later was famous for, clemency toward, well, toward his enemies later, and now toward the conspirators. But here's how he begins, quote, Members of the Senate, all men who deliberate upon difficult questions, had best be devoid of hatred, friendship, anger, and pity. When those feelings stand in the way, the mind cannot at all easily discern the truth. And no one has ever served at the same time his passions and his best interests. When you apply your intellect, it prevails. If passion takes control, it is master, whereas the mind becomes impotent. And so on. And uh, his argument actually is not framed as... An argument for mercy or clemency. It's, uh, it's not an argument about justice or rights, but about expedience, about what is in the best interest of the state and the Senate. And the way that he puts it here is, this is a precedent-breaking sort of a punishment. Roman citizens, according to a law we have, the Lex Portia, they are not to be executed, they are to be exiled. And we'll get a little bit more into the details in a second here. But so even though this is Sallust's actual words, probably, you know, he knew Caesar and he might be drawing on some records of what was being said on that day. And either way, I think he's portraying Caesar well, a clever politician. You know, the Senate and the people of Rome are in no mood to spare the wicked right now. They're no, in no mood to spare these people who are about to set fire to the city, as the allegations go. You know, considering the revelations, this is not on the table, but they might be willing to listen to an argument about expedience, about what is in our best interests. And so here's an example of the thrust of his argument, and it's one that I like in particular because he's drawing on historical examples that we've covered in the Cost of Glory podcast, in the life of Lysander, and the life of Sulla. Here he goes. 
all bad precedents have originated from good measure. But when power comes to those inexperienced in exercising it, or to men not so virtuous, that new precedent is transferred from those deserving and fit for such punishment to the undeserving and unfit. In other words, good people like you, fellow senators, might set a precedent with good intentions, but then later it could be abused by bad people. And so he gives an example here. The Spartans, after they had conquered the Athenians, set 30 men over them to administer their state. This is the famous 30 that we talk about in Lysander Part 2. Those men at first began to put to death without a trial the most wicked and generally hated citizens. The people rejoiced at those executions and declared that they were carried out deservedly. But afterward, when their license gradually increased, the tyrants slew good and bad alike at their pleasure and intimidated the rest. And I'll just pause there and point out this thing I forgot to mention. So, so it's not a legal court that they're being tried in. The, the Senate is not a legal court. This is not a trial that has been had. You know, they've, they've heard some evidence from some witnesses, but there hasn't actually been a trial. So we're, we are talking here about putting these men to death without trial, and that's kind of going to be an important albatross that hangs over Cicero's neck for the rest of his career, actually, that these men were not subject to an actual trial, properly speaking. So he goes on here talking about what happened at Athens. Thus the nation was reduced to slavery and paid a heavy penalty for its foolish rejoicing, including uh, retaliations afterwards. Within our own memory, when the conqueror Sulla ordered the killing of Damasippus and others of that kind, who had become prominent to the detriment of the state, who did not commend his deed? I'm not sure if I mentioned that exactly, by the way, in the life of Sulla, but Damasippus was a praetor who summarily executed a number of Sulla's friends without trial, and then Sulla put him to death without trial in retaliation after he won the Civil War. Uh, so he says, Caesar says, oh, well, yeah, that was good. You know, Damasippus was a bad guy, deserved it. People asserted that criminal intriguers who had disturbed the country with civil strife had deservedly been put to death. But that act was the beginning of great bloodshed. For whenever anyone coveted a man's house in Rome or the countryside, or in short, even a man's cup or clothing, he contrived to have him enrolled among the proscribed. Thus those who had exulted in the death of Damasippus were themselves a little afterward dragged off to execution, and there was no end to the killing until Sulla glutted all his followers with riches. So I, I like those examples because... No, it reminds you that when you're listening to the Cost of Glory podcast, we're looking at the precedents that the Romans and Greeks were drawing on when they were thinking about how to process what was going on in their own times. So I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, Caesar's point here is interesting, and he's tapping into a general feeling among the, the people of Rome that Sulla went too far, or things had gotten out of hand under Sulla. And this was a big inspiration for his policy of clemency that was, was very timely in his day. So, skipping a lot in this excellent speech of his, I'll just come to the end to what he's, what he's actually proposing here. He says at the very end of his speech, Do I then recommend that the prisoners be released and Catiline's forces be augmented? You know, let them go and let them go join up with Catiline? By no means! 
this rather is my advice, that their assets be confiscated, that they themselves be kept in bonds throughout the towns of Italy, which are the strongest in resources. So basically to just keep them under permanent arrest, that no one hereafter shall refer their case to the Senate or bring it before the people, that the Senate take the view that anyone who acts otherwise will be acting against the nation and the common safety. So essentially, let's put them in prison without hope of parole instead of executing them. And Caesar seems to have won over many and maybe even a majority of the senators there are saying, oh, he's making some good points. But then Cato stands up and begins to speak and he disagrees. And his argument, his line of reasoning, similarly, it's not about justice, really, but it's about expedience. It's about what's in the best interests of the Senate and the state of Rome. And, you know, his point is that these people still pose a real threat. We've got a live conspiracy, maybe even a rebellion on our hands, and we'd be putting ourselves in more danger to not execute them. And um, Sallust puts in the, the speech throughout it these little moral barbs that Cato was known for, and you'll see what I mean here. So Cato, toward the beginning of his speech, he says, But by the immortal gods, I call upon you, who have always valued your houses, villas, statues, and paintings more highly than the nation, if you want to retain the possessions to which you cling, of whatever kind they are, if you want to provide freedom from disturbance for indulging your pleasures, Wake up at last and lay hold of the reins of government. At issue is not revenues or the wrongs of our allies. Our very lives and liberty are at stake. So I think that's pretty funny on the one hand, but it's also a pretty effective strategy. I mean, he's trying to come up with arguments that'll work with the Senate. And yes, they do love their villas and their paintings and their statues and their way of life, their, you know, the position that they have secured for themselves or maybe that their ancestors have secured for them from Sallust's perspective. But also in the process, Cato is trying to shame them into proving that they aren't quite like Cato characterizes them. They're, they're not actually soft and luxurious, are they? they? They're patriotic. They want to be, but Cato's going to tell them that they're not. So, they, so he gives them an opportunity to prove him wrong. And I'll go on... Uh, you know, skipping many worthy words of our friend Cato, uh, but just read you a passage from a little further that kind of sums up Cato's speech that gives you a sense of the whole. So here he goes. A short while ago, in fine and well-ordered phrases, Gaius Caesar discoursed in this meeting on the subjects of life and death, regarding as false, I presume, the tales which are told concerning the inhabitants of the underworld. So just to pause here, Caesar said something like, well, you know, death would actually be a reprieve for them because this is kind of Epicurean philosophy. Death is nothing, and so to die is better than to live a, live a painful life. So Cato's jabbing him a little bit. He says, Caesar regards as false, I presume, the tales which are told concerning the inhabitants of the underworld that along a different path from the good the wicked occupy gloomy, desolate, foul, and frightful regions. You know, so there was widespread belief and punishment after 
death and, uh, you know, the wicked get, get extra bad punishment. So we'd be, we'd be, you know, condemning them to what, what they had coming to them. So anyway, going on with Cato here, accordingly, he recommended that their assets be confiscated and, and that they themselves be imprisoned throughout the towns of Italy, doubtless out of fear that if they are in Rome, the adherents of the plot or a hired mob will free them by force. And this is something that apparently happened, that there were a lot of disturbances, supporters of the conspirators, or maybe you'd say clients of theirs were tried to break them out of prison. And there, there were apparently, Salist comments on this, people who had kind of mobs for hire in Rome. You could just hire people to cause a riot or rough up somebody pretty easily in Rome, and they had tried to do that, and it had failed. So Cato's kind of referring to that. As if, indeed, wicked criminals exist only in this city. So if you're afraid that they'll cause disturbance in Rome, well, what about sending them out to Italy? As if, indeed, wicked criminals exist only in the city and not throughout the whole of Italy. Or as if audacity does not have greater strength where the resources to resist it are weaker. Out in the provinces, there's not enough, there's not as much resistance. Therefore, this advice is utterly worthless if Caesar fears danger from the conspirators. So that wouldn't be a safe plan at all, would it, Caesar? He said. And Cato and Caesar are kind of arch enemies politically. So therefore, this advice is utterly worthless if Caesar fears danger from the conspirators. But this is interesting. But if amid such universal dread, he alone is not afraid, there is all the more reason for me to fear for your sake and for my own. And that's a little bit of innuendo there. Well, why is Caesar so confident that he'll be fine? <laughs> is he involved in this plot? And there are a lot of people suspected that, but there was never anything like with Crassus, any, any actual accus accusations made. But that was something that was suspected. Because, you know, Caesar was a man of the people. Catiline was trying to be a man of the people. Just finishing up with Cato here. Therefore, be assured that when you decide the fate of Publius Lentulus and the rest, you will at the same time be passing a decree concerning Catiline's army and all the conspirators. The more vigorous your action, the weaker will be their courage. If they detect even a little weakness on your part, they will all fiercely make their presence immediately felt. So there you go. That's... The gist of Cato's speech, I do recommend reading it on your own sometime. You know, he's telling them to man up. And there's a lot of kind of similar spirit there to Cicero's Catalinarian orations. Like, our ancestors would have not hesitated to execute these men. And he cites a few examples. So after Cato finishes speaking, all the senators are fired up and they're calling each other cowards. You know, it's having the intended effect, and they kind of rile each other up, and the Senate votes, and they decree death to the conspirators. So Sallust goes on, and he narrates what happens to them. Famous moment in the life of Rome, and the life of Cicero in particular. But, as I stated, after the Senate had adopted the recommendation of Cato, the consul, Cicero that is, thinking it best to take action in advance of the approaching nightfall so that no new disturbance might occur after dark, ordered the triumvirs, that's the executioners, 
to make the preparations demanded by the execution. After stationing guards, he personally escorted Lintilus into the prison, while the praetors did the same for the others. In the prison, when you have gone up a little way toward the left, there is a place called the Tullianum, about twelve feet below the surface of the ground. It is enclosed on all sides by walls, and overhead is a vaulted ceiling formed by stone arches, but neglect, darkness, and stench give it a hideous and terrifying appearance. After Lentulus had been let down into this place, the executioners, who had been charged with the task, strangled him with a loop of rope. Thus that patrician of the very illustrious stock of the Cornelii, who had held consular authority at Rome, found a termination of his life, befitting his character and deeds. Punishment was exacted from Cathegus, Statilius, Gabinius, and Caiparius in the same way. And I neglected to mention there an interesting point. Lentulus was actually married to the mother of Mark Antony, the famous later triumvir, friend of Caesar. He was not Mark Antony's father. He was Mark Antony's stepfather. But at that moment, you know, young Mark Antony saw his stepfather executed by the authority of a consul of Rome. He would have been about 20 years old. So Catiline gets out to his troops in Etruria, and he forms up, he ends up forming up two legions worth of men, which is about 10,000 fighting men, soldiers. But, Sallust says, only about a fourth part of the entire force was equipped with regular arms. The others, just as chance had armed them, carried hunting spears or lances, or in some cases, sharpened stakes. Wow. So they're getting ready for the next phase, but then Catiline, Sallust says he gets word of what's happened in the city, and he decides that it's time to try to escape. They're going to try to get through the mountains north out of Etruria and into Cisalpine Gaul and, I guess, escape to non-Roman territory on the edges of the Roman dominion, much like Spartacus tried to about 10 years earlier in the slave rebellion. But Catiline gets trapped. One of the other generals out in the field, Metellus Keller, comes around and cuts him off at the passes on the other side of the mountains. And he gets word of this. And then the other consul, remember his friend, his former friend, Antonius, the other consul for the year, is commanding an army out in the field. And Antonius brings his army up into fighting position and kind of pins him in a valley it's in the region of Pistoria. It's called Pistoia now in Italy. It's about 20 miles from Florence. He gets trapped at the head of this valley. And so Catiline decides to fight and stake it all on this one battle. And Sallust gives him a speech here. You know, he says, this is a speech that he's reconstructing, basically. He says, Catiline said something like this. And I'll read you much of it. And Sallust's readers knew the outcome of all of this. And so they could feel the tragicness of these final words. 
He says, Indeed, you know, soldiers, how much disaster the folly and inaction of Lentulus brought upon himself and us, and how, while I was waiting for reinforcements from the city, I could not set out for Gaul. Now, moreover, you all understand as well as I do in what a position our affairs stand. Two hostile armies, one in the direction of the city, the other in the direction of Gaul, block the way. Lack of grain and other necessities prevents us from remaining any longer in this locale, even if we were most inclined to do so. Wherever we decide to go, we must hew a path with steel. Therefore, I advise you to be brave and ready in spirit, and when you enter battle, to remember that you carry in your own right hands riches, honor, glory, and on top of that, freedom and your native land. If we win, complete security will be ours. Supplies will abound. Towns and colonies will open their gates. If we yield out of fear, those same circumstances will be against us. No place and no friend will protect the man whom arms have not protected. Moreover, soldiers, we and our opponents are not subject to the same constraint. We are contending for our native land, for freedom, for our very lives. Theirs is a pointless exercise to fight on behalf of the power of a few men. Attack, therefore, more boldly, mindful of your former valor. And he goes on a little further on. When I contemplate you, soldiers, and when I weigh your deeds, I have great hope for victory. Your spirit, youth, and valor encourage me, not to mention necessity, which makes even the timid brave. For the narrowness of this place prevents the throng of our enemies from being able to surround us. But... If fortune frowns upon your bravery, take care not to lose your lives unavenged, nor to be captured and slaughtered like cattle, rather than leaving the enemy a bloody and mournful victory by fighting like heroes. And then Sallust continues on here. When he had thus spoken, after a brief pause, he ordered the trumpet calls to sound and led the formed-up ranks down into the plain, then, after sending away all the horses in order to increase his soldiers' courage as a consequence of the equalized danger, on foot he personally drew up his army in keeping with the locale and his forces. So he sends away all the horses there of the people who had horses that they could ride away. So nobody's going to be able to, everybody's on the same footing. Nobody can escape with their horses, the few that have them. And Salus talks about how he lines up for battle. And this is interesting here. He says, He himself, Catiline himself, with freedmen and discharged veterans, took his place beside the eagle which Gaius Marius was said to have had in his army during the Cimbric War. So he's got uh, one of the standards of Gaius Marius, the eagle standard that Marius innovated, that Marius brought to make the standard symbol of the Roman army. And I did a post on this on Twitter a few days ago. This is Marius, the great populist general, the man who made a career of taunting the nobility. He's still a very powerful symbol. Catiline is claiming that he's got the spirit of Marius with him. But then it's interesting here, the consul, the head of the other army, Gaius Antonius, he decides, well, he says that he is sick, that he, he, he claims to have gout 
and that prevents him from fighting on the battlefield. And, and another historian, Cassius Dio, says he he feigned illness so as not to have to confront on the battlefield his former political ally. Just think about that. Catiline facing off with this man that he thought was going to join forces with him. And still, Sallust says, still hoping, still holding out hope that in the battle, Antonius is going to somehow throw it or come over to his side or, or not fight as intensely. You never know what could happen on the battlefield. But that does not happen. Antonius puts another competent subordinate in charge. The guy's name is Petraeus. And he's commanding veteran forces, very tough fighters. And here's the main part of the battle narration that Sallust offers, the Battle of Pistoia. The opposing forces rushed upon each other with a huge outcry. They dispensed with their javelins and fought with their swords. The veterans, recalling their former valor, engaged fiercely in hand-to-hand -hand combat. These are the regime-loyal senatorial troops commanded by Petraeus that he was talking about there. The enemy, Catiline, and his forces, not lacking in courage, stood their ground. There was a terrific struggle. Meanwhile, Catiline was busy on the front line of battle with his light-armed troops, was aiding those who were hard-pressed, was summoning fresh troops to replace the wounded, was keeping an eye on everything, was fighting hard himself, was often striking down the foe. Thus he kept performing at one and the same time the duties of an active soldier and of a good general. When, contrary to his expectation, Petraeus saw Catiline putting up a strong fight, he led his Praetorian cohort against the enemy's center, and having broken their close order, he slew those who resisted in various parts of the field. Then he attacked the rest on both sides at their flanks. Manlius fell fighting in the front ranks. That's Catiline's friend who raised the army. When Catiline saw that his troops had been routed, and that he had been left with a few comrades. Mindful of his birth and his former standing, he plunged into the thickest of the enemy, and while fighting there, was run through. And here is Sallust looking on at the battlefield afterwards. Now when the battle was ended, truly then you might have beheld what boldness and resolution had been present in Catiline's army, for nearly every man covered with his body when life was gone, the ground he had stood on while alive and fighting. All had fallen with wounds in the front. But Catiline was found far from his men amid the bodies of the foemen, still breathing slightly and showing on his face the fierceness of spirit that he had possessed when alive. Finally, out of the whole force, neither in the battle nor in flight, was a single freeborn citizen taken prisoner. Thus all had been no less sparing of their own lives than their enemies. And so I think in Sallust's view, these men, for all the bad things that you could say about them, for having gotten themselves into the situation that they did, at least when the time came, they made the honorable choice in Sallust's eyes and fought to the death.
And here's his closing comment, the closing paragraph of the work. Nevertheless, the army of the Roman people had gained no joyful or bloodless victory. For all the most resolute had either fallen in the battle or come away with severe wounds. Many, too, who had gone out from the camp to have a look or to pillage on turning over the bodies of the enemy found now a friend, now a guest or kinsman. Some also recognized their personal enemies. Thus the whole army was variously affected with exultation and mourning, gladness and lamentation. And that's the end. Civil war is such a terrible thing. I think it's worth dwelling on a comment, just in closing here, that Sallust makes on the death of Catiline here. He says, and I read this earlier, When Catiline saw that his troops had been routed and that he had been left with a few comrades, mindful of his birth and his former standing, he plunged into the thickest of the enemy and while fighting there was run through. So I think in Sallust's view here, the thing that steals you to face death bravely is remembering who you are. Whatever you could say about Catiline, he had some kind of greater principle within him, some sense of his own identity, his own story, his own unique mission in life, even. And this is something that is above your emotions, above your reason, and the decisions that you make at any given moment. This deeper identity, some higher principle of you that guides you. And Catiline found this principle within him in, in these last moments. And he wouldn't run away, even though surely he knew that his cause was lost. But he decided that he would go down with his troops, go down with the ship. And so whatever we think of Catiline's choices or his cause, I mean, the Romans of his day certainly felt that this was a great nature that had been tragically turned against the state. It just, it makes me think of Nietzsche again, this passage in Twilight of the Idols, where he says, almost every genius knows as one of the phases of his development, the Catalinarian existence, a feeling of hatred, revengefulness, and revolt against everything which already is. Catiline, the antecedent form of every Caesar. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. Stay attentive to the strange and dangerous forces that perhaps lie in all of us. If you enjoyed this, leave us a review. Subscribe to our newsletter at ancientlifecoach.com. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.